Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Days of Thunder. Now, what do I mean by titling tonight's episode, Days of Thunder? Well, there are a number of reasons for it. First off, today commences my fifth week of trying to put out a podcast every weekday. Last Friday, I misreported accidentally when I said that I had been doing this now for three weeks. Actually, I have been doing it for four weeks prior to this time. My, how time flies when you're having fun. But I went back and double-checked. Yes, I put up a podcast every weekday for the two weeks leading up to General Conference, and now it has been two weeks since General Conference, and I have put up a podcast every weekday. So in total, four weeks, and today commences the fifth week of a new podcast of Radio Free Mormon coming at you every weekday. Once again, this is my way of doing my part in trying to help those of you who are sheltering at home due to the coronavirus epidemic. And indeed, the coronavirus epidemic, which is now at over 30 days of the shutdown of the country, are also the days of thunder. You know, the first few days during the shutdown, I would wake up in the morning as if everything were normal, and then suddenly it would hit me right between the eyes that we are in the middle of a coronavirus epidemic, that people are catching the coronavirus out there and people are dying from the coronavirus out there, that we are in the middle of our equivalent of the Black Death. Now, it's certainly not as bad yet, and hopefully it never will become anywhere near as bad as the Black Death was several hundred years ago. But nevertheless, for this generation, there are definitely some similarities. And I would wake up in the morning, it would hit me between the eyes, we're in the middle of this, and all of a sudden I would remember what is going on, how life has changed, how my life has changed because of the coronavirus pandemic. And that is a thought that would haunt me every waking moment. But now, over the last several weeks, it has become more and more just the way things are. It has become the new normal. I do not wake up in the morning anymore with this dread hanging over me. Instead, it is just the way life is. And this, in many ways, speaks to how adaptable we as a species are. Human beings are incredibly adaptable to their environment, even in a situation such as this. And it is, among other things, that ability to adapt that has landed us at the top of the food chain. And here I want to talk briefly about the LDS plan of salvation. It will be brief, but you remember that back on February 16, 1832, Joseph Smith, in company with Sidney Rigdon, received a revelation and a vision which has become canonized as section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It is sometimes called the vision of the degrees of glory. All of my listeners presumably know what that is. If not, please go and read section 76. But essentially, what Joseph Smith did was he revolutionized the idea of salvation, at least compared to many other Christian churches of his day. Because many other Christian churches back then, as well as today, not all of them, mind you, not all of them, but many of them believed that salvation was reserved for a select few and everybody else would be damned to hell for eternity. Joseph Smith turned that around and said that except for a very small group, i.e. the sons of perdition, everybody, everybody would receive a degree of glory. Everybody would receive salvation. Everybody would go to one heaven or another. And interestingly, Over time, over the last almost 200 years, the LDS Church has sort of shifted that idea in section 76. They have sort of shifted 
that understanding. They still believe in the degrees of glory. They still teach the degrees of glory, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the telestial. But it seems to have come to a point where, instead of Joseph Smith's teaching that everybody except a handful will be saved, today the LDS Church tends to focus on the idea that everybody except a handful will be damned. And the handful that will be saved or exalted in LDS parlance are those few who make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Everybody else will receive a degree of glory, but only those in the celestial kingdom will A, get to be with their families forever, B, get to continue the divine purpose of having children, and C, they are the ones who will continue to be able to progress forever. Well, what about all those people who don't make it to the top of the celestial kingdom? They're not in that elect group, and they're also not in the bottom group of the sons of perdition. What about the vast majority of humankind who make it somewhere in between? They are still in a degree of salvation. They are still assigned to a heaven forever. How is it then that the LDS church can teach that they are damned in some sense? Well, obviously they're damned in the sense that they can no longer progress. We'll get back to that idea here in a second. They're damned in the idea that they can no longer progress, but also something else that has sneaked into the lexicon is the idea that they will be eternally disappointed. They will always have to live with the knowledge that they could have had more if they had just been more faithful to the teachings of the LDS church in this life. If they had been more valiant in mortality, they could have had a V8. They could have made it to the top of the celestial kingdom. And it is that knowledge that they fell short that will be with them forever and ever throughout all eternity. And that will form and constitute the damnation that they will feel and the eternal torment that they will have to experience forever. I know I've heard that many times in the LDS church. I'm sure you have too. I've taught it many times as part of being a missionary, as part of being a full-time missionary, as well as a stake missionary after my mission. But as I began to think about this concept more and more, it struck me that human beings really are an adaptable species. And even if we go to the telestial kingdom or the terrestrial kingdom or a lower kingdom in the celestial kingdom and do not receive total pure exaltation. We might be disappointed about it for a while, but you know, we'll get over it. We're adaptable. It will become the new normal, just as I am finding myself more and more able to adapt to the new circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic. And I expect to a large degree, you are too. It is earth shaking. It is world rocking at the beginning and for the first several days and the first few weeks or so. But after a while, you get used to it. And I expect that it will be very similar in the eternities. You may not make it to the celestial kingdom and you may feel bad about that for a while, but you know something? Eternity's a long time and after the first month or so, you'll get over it and you'll be happy where you are. And here's a news flash. Not everybody would really like to spend eternity with their family. Now, everybody's going to tell you, families are great. I love my family. I want to be with my family forever. And I'm sure that that's true in some cases. I have members of my family that I absolutely adore. But when it comes down to it, there's an old saying that you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And maybe I'd rather be with my friends forever than be exalted with my family. And what happens if my friends don't make it to the celestial kingdom? What happens if they are not among that elect few? Well, I guess I'm separated from my friends for eternity. What happens if all my family doesn't make it to the celestial kingdom? I mean, especially those members that I really like. Well, I guess I'm going to be separated from them for eternity as well. So how is that going to work out to be really heaven and really exaltation and really a place where there's never ending happiness? Well, the LDS church does not seem to have a good answer to that today. It falls under this ever expanding heading of God will work it out. 
just trust him. And when you hear a church leader saying, just trust God, really what I hear them saying is, just trust me. Because that's sort of what it amounts to when you have leaders who speak for God. Now I wanna go back to this idea just briefly about the doctrine that there is no progression for those in lower kingdoms of glory. Because that is certainly what is taught in the church today. I think it was one of Bruce R. McConkie's Seven Deadly Heresies in his famous speech from the early 1980s. It was a heresy. It is a heresy to believe that there is progression between kingdoms. But what I want to bring up here is just the idea that this is not something that has always been a doctrine in the LDS church. In fact, James Talmadge, an apostle in the church, you remember him, the apostle who wrote Jesus the Christ as well as the Articles of Faith, he indicated that there might be some sort of progression between kingdoms and that as far as he was concerned, the case was not closed on that question. When I was on my mission to Japan back between 1979 and 1981, I got a copy of Jesus the Christ and the Articles of Faith, and they are both bound together in a very small book. It's black, it's made out of leather, it's a nice production, and it has a ton of pages in it, as you can imagine, both of them together, but they are printed on onion skin paper, the same kind of paper we have in our LDS scriptures. And by and large, Elder James Talmadge was the individual who was responsible for correlating the teachings of the scriptures and Joseph Smith into the doctrine that we have today in the church. Prior to Elder Talmadge, there was a great deal more diversity in teachings and beliefs in doctrines in the LDS church. There was much more of a speculative theology that was rampant in the LDS church and different people and different church leaders could have different ideas about theology and that was considered to be, well, if not okay, it was certainly something that occurred with regularity. But James Talmadge was the individual primarily responsible, in my view, for correlating the different teachings, the different doctrines, and it was through the writings of his books, Jesus the Christ and the Articles of Faith, and their popularity thereafter and their promotion by the leaders of the church as books that were authoritative in teaching doctrine that were largely responsible for the correlated doctrine that we have today. It was especially interesting given that background and that understanding of Jesus the Christ and the Articles of Faith, two books which, by the way, were the only two books on my mission that were considered permissible to read as LDS missionaries in addition to the standard works. You could read the standard works, you could read Jesus the Christ, you could read the Articles of Faith, but nothing else. That was it in my mission. And some mission presidents were more strict, some were more lax in that regard. I'm just telling you the way it was in my mission. But even though Jesus the Christ and the Articles of Faith are considered to be the cornerstone of orthodoxy in the LDS Church, nevertheless, every now and again, we can see something in those books that is not orthodox. It's not very often. This may be the only example of which I'm aware currently, and it has to do, as you might expect by now, with the idea that there could be progression between kingdoms. In the Articles of Faith by James Talmadge, this is chapter 22, which deals with Article 11 of the Articles of Faith. In my copy, it comes on page 409. And James Talmadge has a number of subsection headings. And the subsection heading here is the kingdoms with respect to one another. And after going briefly through the three different degrees of glory, he states this. Listen carefully now. It is reasonable to believe in the absence of direct revelation by which alone absolute knowledge of the matter could be acquired that in accordance with God's plan of eternal progression, advancement within each of the three specified kingdoms will be provided for. 
All right, so first off, he's only talking about advancement within each of the three specified kingdoms. But he also says that there's an absence of direct revelation on the subject, and that this would be in accordance with God's plan of eternal progression, to have advancement within each of the three specified kingdoms. But he goes on beyond just advancement within the kingdoms, and he writes the following. Though as to possible progress from one kingdom to another, the scriptures make no positive affirmation. So you can see he's sort of walking a line here. He's saying we can presume that there is advancement within kingdoms, but as far as advancement from one kingdom to another, he says the scriptures don't say absolutely that that can happen. He then goes on to speculate, eternal advancement along different lines is conceivable. So here he's talking about the idea that we could have eternal advancement along different lines and that that is conceivable even according to James Talmadge, even in his book, The Articles of Faith. Now, what does he mean by advancement along different lines? What a fascinating idea. When I consider this concept, what I think of is a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis. You've got one axis going up one side, one axis going across the horizontal on the bottom. And if you have three different lines, one going up at a 45 degree angle, and that's the progress, okay? It seems that he's saying that you could liken people in the celestial kingdom to being on a 45 degree angle of progress. That's one line of progression. That's one line of eternal advancement. And the people in the terrestrial kingdom, well, they don't advance as quickly. They might be at a 40 degree angle of advancement. So their angle would be a straight line somewhat below the 45 degree angle, which would represent the celestial kingdom. What about those in the telestial kingdom? Well, they might be at a 35 degree angle of advancement. So each of the kingdoms have people in it who eternally advance, only they eternally advance along different lines. This is what I think he means when he says eternal advancement along different lines is conceivable. So if you look at a graph like that, The key to understanding this for me is that the people in the celestial kingdom advancing at 45 degrees, well, they are going to advance eternally. And the people at 40 degrees, well, wait a second, they're going to advance eternally as well. And every place that the celestial kingdom on the 45 degree line of advancement gets to, the people in the terrestrial kingdom on the 40 degree angle of advancement will also get every place that the celestial kingdom people get to only they won't get there quite as soon as those in the celestial kingdom. What about those in the telestial kingdom, those on that 35 degree angle line of advancement? The same thing applies to them. They will get every place that the celestial kingdom people get to, and they will get every place that the terrestrial kingdom people get to, only they will get there later. They will get there a little bit slower. Their line of advancement is not as high as those in upper kingdoms, but ultimately, All of those lines of advancement for all three kingdoms continue to increase eternally and therefore they all engage in eternal progression. This is what I think that Elder Talmadge is getting at by this very interesting line he says, eternal advancement along different lines is conceivable. You could also think about it as three race cars starting at a starting line. One goes 100 miles an hour, one goes 70 miles an hour, and one goes 50 miles an hour. Even though the celestial kingdom is going 100 miles an hour, those in the lesser kingdoms will get everywhere that the celestial kingdom gets to, only they will get there a little bit later than those in the celestial kingdom. And here is how Elder Talmadge concludes this fascinating section. We may conclude that degrees and grades will ever characterize the kingdoms of our God. Eternity is progressive. Perfection is relative. 
The essential feature of God's living purpose is its associated power of eternal increase. So I find that to be a fascinating quote from Elder Talmadge's Articles of Faith. The first edition of this book appeared in April 1899. It was written by an apostle of the LDS Church. Rumor has it, I don't know if it's true, that it was actually written in the LDS Temple in Salt Lake City so that Elder Talmadge could be more in commune with the Spirit of God as he wrote these books. And yet, within the span of 80 years, between the time he wrote this book and the time that Elder Bruce R. McConkie, another apostle in the LDS Church, gave his talk, The Seven Deadly Heresies. The idea that Elder Talmadge left open about eternal progress between kingdoms was absolutely and irrevocably shut closed by Elder McConkie. Let's see if I can find what it is that he said on this subject in his talk, The Seven Deadly Heresies. Let's see, Heresy 1, there are those who say that God is progressing in knowledge and is learning new truths. No, that's not it. Heresy 2 concerns itself with the relationship between organic evolution and revealed religion and asks the question whether they can be harmonized. No, that's not it. Heresy 3, there are those who say that temple marriage assures us of an eventual exaltation. That's not it. Heresy 4, there are those that believe that the doctrine of salvation for the dead offers men a second chance for salvation. Nope. Heresy 5, there are those who say that there is progression from one kingdom to another. This is the one, Heresy 5. Here it is. There are those who say that there is progression from one kingdom to another in the eternal worlds, or that lower kingdoms eventually progress to where higher kingdoms once were. Now, that's exactly what it is that Elder Talmadge is talking about, that lower kingdoms eventually progress to where higher kingdoms once were. What does Elder McConkie think about this? Well, (laughs) from the fact it's number five in his list of seven deadly heresies, we can guess, but this is what he goes on to say. This belief lulls men into a state of carnal security. It causes them to say, God is so merciful, surely he will save us all eventually. If we do not gain the celestial kingdom now, eventually we will. So why worry? It lets people live a life of sin here and now with the hope that they will be saved eventually. The true doctrine, this is what Elder McConkie says, the true doctrine is that all men will be resurrected, but they will come forth in the resurrection with different kinds of bodies, some celestial, others terrestrial, others telestial, and some with bodies incapable of standing any degree of glory. The body we receive in the resurrection determines the glory we receive in the kingdoms that are prepared. So as far as what Elder McConkie has said so far, there's nothing really that contradicts Elder Talmadge. Let's move on a little bit further down here in his heresy number five and see where the point of disputation is. Here it is. They never progress. They never progress from one kingdom to another, nor does a lower kingdom ever get where a higher kingdom once was. Whatever eternal progression there is, it is within a sphere. So we can see a number of things here. First off, we can see a change in doctrine. We can see Elder Talmadge in his seminal work, The Articles of Faith, leaving open and even suggesting the possibility and probability of the idea that there is progression between kingdoms or at least that lower kingdoms do progress to the point where they occupy the space that previous kingdoms formerly had. That there is indeed eternal progression for all people in any of the three kingdoms of glory, though it may be along different lines of advancement, as Elder Talmadge puts it. This is something that Elder McConkie does not like. He disagrees. He's going to shut the door on it. He's not going to talk about how Elder Talmadge taught something different. He's just going to say, this is a heresy. I say so. That settles it. And you need to believe it. And not only can we see a change in the doctrine, we can see a change in the position of at least these two church leaders as it relates to the approach to doctrine itself. Elder Talmadge's was more open, more 
willing to accept further light and knowledge, more willing to take the basic principle that God's idea of salvation for all of his children is eternal progression and try and apply it to our understanding of the three kingdoms of glory versus Elder McConkie, who was not open to new learning, who was not open to new understanding. The glory for him in the gospel was not the ability to learn more. The glory for him in the gospel was we have all the answers to every question, which is certainly something that he seems to have felt that he did. He had the answers to every question so much that he was able to write his seminal work, Elder McConkie's seminal work, Mormon Doctrine, in which he went through in alphabetical order pretty much anything and everything that could have any relationship to LDS doctrine whatsoever, including hypnosis, playing cards, and Ouija boards, and come up with an absolute definite answer to all of those. And by the way, if you haven't read the book, the answer to all of those is God doesn't like them, don't do them. So now, also talking about Days of Thunder, the title of tonight's podcast, I want to talk a little bit about the second day of fasting and prayer that the church had on Good Friday, April 10th, 2020. But before I get to that, I want to talk about the podcast that I put up on the same day, April 10th, 2020, which was called That Time I Got Molested as a Kid. That one podcast has unleashed a flood of responses from listeners, many of whom have shared with me their experiences being molested as a child, some of them being molested or sexually assaulted, not only as a child, but also as an adult. And I'm very, very glad for the outpouring of enthusiasm for that episode and the freedom it has given some of my listeners to express, some for the first time, their own personal stories at being victimized in this horrible way. I even had one listener call me on the phone. Now, this listener, I will not mention her name. She is the mother of my home teacher. And I've talked about my home teacher, quote unquote, in previous podcasts. He is a great guy. He's got a super mom. She is in her 80s. She is as TBM as TBM could be. And believe it or not, she sometimes listens to Radio Free Mormon. And she actually called me on the phone and wanted to tell me about two experiences that she had when she was a child. One, she was around five or six years old. The other when she was a freshman in high school. Both incidents that, although very long ago, were extremely traumatizing to her and which she feels continue to impact her to this day. And you know, as I began to reflect a little bit more on my experience, a couple of ideas came to me. And this has to do with the impact that this experience had on me, not just later in life, but even earlier in life, when I was a kid, after it happened back in June of 1970. I've actually never made this connection before, and I want to share it with you now. The fact is, is that when I was young, I was extremely ashamed of my body. Now, I'm not exactly sure why that was. Looking back at it now, there was really nothing to be ashamed of. If you look at pictures of me back from when I was young, in my teens, my early teens, nothing to be ashamed of there. And yet, I was so ashamed that I always wore a winter coat wherever I went. Now, this was one of those nylon coats. My mom got it for me. She was the one in charge of picking out the winter coats. It was maroon in color for whatever reason. She really liked the color maroon. I didn't really like the color maroon, but that was the coat I had. So that was the coat I wore. But I didn't just wear it when it was cold outside. I didn't just wear it when it was rainy outside. I wore it every day to school. I wore it during the cold months. I wore it during the hot months. I wore it when it was raining. I wore it when it wasn't raining. I wore this coat all the time, even when it was terribly uncomfortable and extremely hot. Imagine wearing a winter jacket during the summer. And it has been ages 
since I thought about this. I mean, I remember wearing this coat. It would be during a warm spring day. We're walking home from school, me and some other buddies. This would have been in eighth grade. And I remember Benny Benson and Bob Lewis, my two friends, and they're not wearing these heavy jackets, but I'm wearing this heavy winter's coat. It's probably May. It would have been 1974. And we're walking to one of their houses from school, and I've got this hot jacket on. And I wore it all the time, but I specifically remember this day with these two friends walking home and it being hot and me having this hot winter coat on. It was crazy. It made absolutely no sense. And yet this is what I did. Not only that, I remember also once going to a dance, a quote unquote dance in seventh grade. That could have been eighth grade as well. I'm not sure, but they were having a dance in one part of the gym. And then in another part of the gym in a separate room, they had a lot of other different activities go on. Well, I never went into that room where they were having the dance because I was scared to death of girls. I went over into the separate gymnasium where they had a ping pong table set up. There were other things that kids could do. I was at the ping pong table because I like playing ping pong. I was okay at it. And I was playing ping pong all night long and I was getting incredibly sweaty. But guess what I had on for the entire night? I am playing ping pong to beat the band. I'm working up a huge sweat. I'm terribly hot, but that coat is always on me. And the reason I remember that is because at the end of the evening, I had done okay. I had beat my share of players. But the teacher who was in charge of supervising the event came up to me and said, wow, you are a really good ping pong player. You're not even hot yet. You still have your coat on. And I remember thinking, he thinks I'm not hot yet, but I'm burning up here. I have my coat on because I always had my coat on. And the reason I'm telling you the story is because I wonder now, if that always wearing the coat, if that shame of my body was connected in some way to my being molested when I was 10 years old, I can think back at this point and I don't remember wearing a winter coat all the time before I was 10, but I certainly remember it after I was 10. Is there a connection there? I can't say for sure. All I can say is there sure could be. And it wasn't just wearing a coat all the time. I developed a hunch. And by a hunch, I don't mean the idea that something might be true. I mean a physical hunch. I would walk stooped over with my head looking at the ground. And I did this everywhere I went. It's been so long ago, once again, that I never think about this. But I've been thinking about what happened when I was 10 and thinking about these odd things that I did after it. And I didn't do them before, but I did them after it for years. And now I'm wondering, was there a connection? I remember I had a friend at the Village Green Apartments. Remember, it was the Village Green Apartments where I was molested shortly after we moved there in June of 1970. And we were there for several years later, but I had a friend. His name was Tracy Shue. And we would go rock collecting together. He liked collecting rocks. There was an open field. There were lots of open fields and trees around the Village Green Apartments then. Now there's nothing except for asphalt and buildings. But back there in the early 1970s, there were lots of forests, there were lots of fields, and we would walk over. He showed me this field, which was just a short walk from the Village Green Apartments, and we would walk down a trail into this field, which is really just this large, flat piece of undeveloped land. And that was where we went rock hunting. Tracy Shue called it the mud plots. I would swear to you that's what he called it, the mud plots. I have no idea what that meant, but that was what we called this field where we went to go hunt rocks. And we would spend hours there every weekend going back and forth over this big field. And we would be looking down at the ground as we walked slowly over the field seeing if we could find any interesting rocks. And I remember that my hunch and my posture, which was horrible at the time, was perfectly suited 
to looking for rocks in the mud plots. And we found some cool rocks. I had a bit of a rock collection. It was in a metal coffee container. My folks would get coffee in those metal containers and I got one after they were done using it and I would put my rocks in it. I do not know how long that would have continued because it lasted for several years, both the wearing the coat and the hunched over posture except for the fact that two things ended up being my salvation in that regard, and they were cross-country and ballet. I turned out for cross-country for the first time in high school, and I ran and I ran and I ran along with all the other guys on the team and the gals on the team, too. There were two gals on the team, and whatever body image problems that I had, which were really more in my mind than they were on my body, those got pretty much taken care of through cross-country because I became a lean running machine. And as to ballet, which I started taking as a junior in high school, as it turned out, taking ballet is the best thing that a person could possibly do for their posture. That's not why I went into it at the time, but boy, did that help straighten up my posture because that's the whole point of ballet is having good posture. And I'm actually sitting here at my chair in my underground bunker, sitting up straight as if I'm at the bar in ballet class. The mental image from one of my teachers about posture was to imagine in your mind a fish hook on a fishing line coming down from directly above you in front of your face, catching you right underneath your sternum in your chest and then lifting you straight up from that point. That was the posture that we were supposed to have in ballet and that was the way that my posture went from being stooped over all the time and hunched to actually looking like a normal human being, like a ballet dancer. And how I went from having bad posture to having good posture. I will say parenthetically right now that also ballet and dance in general was my saving grace for what I mentioned to you in the seventh or eighth grade dance I went to where I didn't go to the dance. I went to play ping pong because I was scared to death of girls. I was scared to death of girls for my entire teenage years. And I think that's one of the bad things that goes along with not having any sisters. I'm the youngest of three boys. All I have is brothers. The only thing similar to a girl in our house is mom, and she is not something that I consider to be a girl. I doubt that I ever even considered her at the time as having once been a girl. And my mom, bless her heart, born in 1922 and raised in the Depression, she always taught me that girls were a thing apart. In fact, she would say that girls never sweat. Actually, nobody ever sweats. My mom was very particular about her words and tried to teach that to me. People do not sweat. Animals sweat. People perspire. And when it comes to girls, girls don't even perspire. They glow. (laughs) That was the word, believe it or not. That was the word that my mom used. Men perspire. Girls glow. Well, when I finally got to dance class, I'm one of the only guys there and everybody else is girls. And I'm looking around, and by the end of the class, I can tell you that none of those girls are glowing. They are perspiring. They are sweating because they are working out very hard just like I was. And so dance not only helped with my posture, it also helped me to understand that girls are actually people too. They actually perspire. They are human. (laughs) And while I cannot tell you that my fear of girls completely went away, it certainly subsided to a great degree. Just a few of the many side benefits of dance. Good posture and sweaty girls. But once again, this is all part of my reflecting upon my life and seeing the connection that is there, might be there, could possibly there, I think probably is there, though I can't prove it, between what happened to me when I was 10 years old and the way I developed as a young teenager. And if it had not been for cross country, I might still suffer the same kind of body shaming internalization that I had back then. And if it had not been for dance, I might still walk around hunched over 
looking at the ground wherever I went. Okay, finally now, under the category of Days of Thunder, I want to talk a little bit about the Days of Prayer and Fasting that President Nelson has called for in the LDS Church in order to try and abate the coronavirus. And before I get there, can I just give you a couple more thoughts that I have on the new church logo? You know, I went on a bike ride on Saturday around the neighborhood, and I went for several miles, and on my way back from the bike ride, I passed by the local LDS church building. Now, of course, there was nobody there because it was a Saturday, number one, and number two, we're in the middle of the coronavirus. There's nobody there even on Sundays, I presume. But I rode into the parking lot on my bicycle and I noticed this big sign. I've seen this big sign in driving by before, but I stopped in front of this big sign in front of the church where it says, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that Jesus Christ in that title is so big now that if it gets any bigger, they're going to need to get a bigger sign just to contain the name of Jesus Christ. If this were something where somebody was emailing or texting and it's all capitals and it's super big, it's almost like the sign is yelling at me. It's like it's saying, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as this idea struck me, it almost looks desperate on the part of the church. They keep making the words Jesus Christ in the title bigger and bigger on their signage, and they have, I think, since the 1980s, when they started making it bigger and bigger in relation to the other words in the title. And as I say, now it's so big that if it gets any bigger, they're going to need a bigger sign. But this idea that it almost seems desperate on the part of the church to get non-members to understand that, yes, Mormons actually do believe in Jesus Christ. You think it would be evident enough from the title, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but no, now they have to go to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to try and get people to understand. It's like they're shouting out for attention, hey, look at us, we actually do believe in Jesus. I think the next step will be to put the name Jesus Christ in red neon letters on the sign. But actually, now that I think about it, the red neon on the sign may be the equivalent of the new church logo, because instead of neon, we've got a big image of Jesus Christ above the name of the church in the new church logo introduced by President Nelson in the last general conference. And this is, of course, a replication of the statue, the Christus, which the LDS Church has, for all intents and purposes, adopted as its own. And now they have really adopted it as their own. They practice trademarked Jesus. But here we have this picture of Jesus, the Christus, on top of the church's name in the new logo. And unfortunately, the statue itself is huge. It's ginormous. And when you walk up to it, you have to look up at the statue. And of course, the face of Jesus is looking down. It's looking down at the people who are looking up at the statue because it's so big. But they went ahead and they kept the position of the head the same in the church logo. So here you have Jesus, who's just come out of the tomb apparently, but he's looking down at the ground. He's not looking up, he's looking down. Apparently Jesus has bad posture like I had, and it looks like he might be going on a rock collecting journey out to the mud plots like I did when I was a kid. So if they had talked with me, I would have said, okay, you can keep that idea, but let's put the face of Jesus looking up a little bit, all right? Let's make it look like he's not actually ashamed to be being used as the logo for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I kind of wonder why it is that they're going to these lengths. First off, I recognize that there is an issue, a PR issue, about people not recognizing that Mormons believe in Jesus. There's a lot of that that still goes on out there. They want to have the name of the church out there. And now they want to have the name Jesus Christ super big. A number of decades ago, they changed the title of the Book of Mormon. It used to just be the Book of Mormon. Now it's the Book of Mormon, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. And that is actually officially a new part of the title of the Book of Mormon. Once again, not just new scripture, 
but a new title to the foundational book of scripture of the LDS Church. And if memory serves, yes, that change was made once again without submitting it to a vote of the members. I went back and did a little research on this, and yes, it does appear that it was the October General Conference of 1982 when Elder Boyd K. Packer stood up in front of the saints assembled and announced that this decision to change the title of the Book of Mormon to add another testament of Jesus Christ to the official title was a decision that had already been made and implemented by the leaders. And he did not ask for a sustaining vote of the members. He did not ask for their input in the decision at all. Instead, he just mentions it sort of like it would be a good thing for you to know that we already made this decision without you. Here's Elder Boyd K. Packer, October 1982. Play the tape. You should know also that... By recent decision of the brethren, the Book of Mormon will henceforth bear the title, The Book of Mormon, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to say a couple things here now. Here's something that occurred to me during the last general conference. It was April 2020, and this has to do with the vote of the members, which is seemingly seen as less and less important and less and less significant to the leaders of the church over time. I've talked about this at some length before and how it seems that it really doesn't make any difference how the members vote when new leaders or the same old leaders are put up for a sustaining vote every six months in general conference. It doesn't make any difference how the members vote or what the members say during the vote. The leaders of the church are going to continue on the same path that the leaders of the church want to go on. The members have no say in it. And it struck me at the very opening of the Saturday morning session of General Conference when I wanted to see what the layout was going to be. I knew it was going to be in a smaller room. I knew it wasn't going to be in the big conference center. I knew that there weren't going to be people attending. And I saw that there was a smaller room. There were maybe a hundred chairs in it. All of them were empty. And there were three chairs at the front, the red crushed velvet high back chairs, of course, that the leaders of the church have, which apparently had been carted over from the conference center because it's important that they sit in those nice chairs for the viewing audience. So they will recognize that the important people sit in the important chairs. But there was nobody else there. Sure, there was somebody manning the camera and maybe somebody manning the teleprompter or the cue cards or whatever it is they're reading off of. But there was basically nobody present in the room except for the leaders. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know something? They can't see who it is who's watching. Everybody who's watching is watching from a remote location. They're watching over the computer. They're watching on BYU TV. So everybody who is in the millions probably watching General Conference, they can see the leaders of the church speaking. But in this unique situation, the leaders of the church cannot see any of the members who are watching. They can't see a hundred members seated in this smaller room because there's nobody seated in the seats. They can't see thousands of members in the room like they can in the General Conference Center. They can't see anybody. And the thought suddenly occurred to me, are they still going to go through with the sustaining vote of the officers and leaders of the church? And the reason this question occurred to me was because if they go forward with a sustaining vote for the leaders of the church, and they can't see anybody who's voting and how they're voting, then would not doing that prove beyond all doubt that the sustaining vote that is called for at every general conference is in fact what I've been saying all along. It is a complete sham. It is a waste of time. It is a ritual that has no 
effect upon the leaders of the church. The leaders of the church don't care how the members vote. They're going to go ahead and do whatever it is they want to do. It is simply something that they do in order to give the illusion of having members involved in the sustaining and voting for church leaders. Now, I've talked about this with a number of friends, and some of those friends have said, well, you know, it's for the members. It's for the members so that they get the chance to raise their hands to sustain their leaders. And I said, well, okay, fine. If it's for the members, fine. But we have to understand that this is supposed to be a sustaining vote. And the people I talk to say, well, no, no, it's not a vote. It's not a vote. And I said, well, it's called a sustaining vote. And in fact, at the end of the vote, when President Uchtdorf used to do it, he said, the vote has been noted. Remember, that was right after he said the note has been voted. And then he corrected himself to say the vote has been noted. It is a vote. There is supposed to be this idea of common consent in the church. Now, granted, that's a thing of the past. It only exists in the pages of the Doctrine and Covenants. But this idea of common consent and everything is supposed to be done by common consent of the members of the church. And nowhere is that more important than in the sustaining vote for the leaders of the church. But here we have, once again, the situation where the leaders of the church are going to have a general conference where during this coronavirus pandemic, they cannot see anybody who's voting with the possible exception, again, of the cameraman. And once again, the thought occurred to me that if they go forward under these unique circumstances where they can't see the members of the church and have the sustaining vote anyway, then are they not tacitly acknowledging that it is a sham, that they don't care how the members vote, that they are going to go forward with a vote where they can't even see how the members vote and it doesn't make any difference. They will go on as normal. The leaders will do what the leaders want to do. And it was at that point that I thought, you know, it would be a good idea maybe not to go forward with the vote to say we normally have a vote at this time, but because nobody's here and we can't see, we're going to not go forward with the vote. We'll go forward with that next time in six more months when we can see you. But no, like clockwork, of course they went through with the sustaining vote and they did that at the beginning of the Saturday afternoon session. And that was when my eyes rolled back up in my head and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Here are the leaders of the church broadcasting for anybody with ears to hear and eyes to see that they don't care how you vote. People at home could have all been voting, no, we don't want you as leaders of the church, or no, there's a particular leader of the church that we don't want to be the leader of the church because of some reason or other. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference how the people vote. The leaders are going to be who the leaders are. They're going to pick who the new leaders are to fill different spots, and it doesn't make any difference how you vote. And I think that this past general conference demonstrated that in spades. That was one of the most significant things about this past general conference. And I haven't heard anybody else comment on this one particular aspect that struck me with such force. And so, in spite of the fact that President Nelson has wanted to re-emphasize and re-emphasize the correct name of the church being the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church is supposed to belong not only to Jesus Christ, it's also supposed to belong to the Latter-day Saints. It is not only the Church of Jesus Christ, it is also the Church of Latter-day Saints. And what was made clear in this last general conference is that really, the church does not belong to the Latter-day Saints at all. And maybe this is why it is they're able to increase the font size of the name Jesus Christ to where it is so big that it's basically overshadowing and even coming to the point of completely excluding the role of the Latter-day Saints in the government and voting of the church. Now, once again, you can find any of a number of ways to explain around this, but I think that the bottom line that it's hard to explain away is that the leaders of the church don't care how you vote. 
They're going to pick who they want to pick. They're going to proceed how they want to proceed. And you have nothing to do with it. The semblance of a vote is just that. It is a semblance. It is a facade. It is a sham. The law of common consent, which is what it's called, the law of common consent, is effectively dead in the LDS Church. It has been for many decades, but we actually had the funeral sermon this past General Conference, April 2020. Common consent, rest in peace. Just another casualty of the COVID-19 crisis. Okay, now finally, I want to talk about the two days of fasting and prayer that the church has held in order to stop the coronavirus. Now, we know that the very fact that there were two days of fasting and prayer shows that the first day of fasting and prayer did not do the trick. The first day of fasting and prayer was held on March 29th, 2020. That was a Sunday. It was the Sunday before General Conference. And then, because that did not help with the coronavirus, President Nelson called for another day of fasting and prayer, and he did this for the Friday after General Conference. And the second day of fasting and prayer apparently may have done the trick, may not have done the trick. It certainly did not do the trick dramatically or effectively as of that second day of fasting and prayer, which was on Good Friday, April 10th, 2020, because the coronavirus did not hit a wall. It went down, deaths in the United States specifically, went down for a couple of days, but then it shot back up higher than it was even before the day of fasting and prayer. We hit all-time records in the United States after the second day of prayer and fasting. It came down a little bit after that. It shot up. It's come down a little bit more. It shot up again to an all-time record, and it seems to be going down now. Once again, that second day of fasting and prayer is 10 days ago on April 10th, 2020, today's date being April 20th, 2020. But I wondered why it was that these days of fasting and prayer were not sufficient to get God on the horn and to get him to take action. And I went back and I started looking at the language that President Nelson used. The first time he called for a day of fasting and prayer, and also the second time that he called for a day of fasting and prayer. And putting myself in the position of God, it wasn't really clear to me what it was that he was asking for. Now, I've said a number of times that these days of fasting and prayer were done in order to turn back the tide of the coronavirus, to stop it dead in its tracks. But really, that's not exactly what it was that President Nelson asked for, and it's not what he asked the saints to pray for. His language was not so direct. It was a lot more loosey-goosey. It was a lot more open to interpretation. For instance, in his first call for a day of fasting and prayer, he asked that the saints pray that we be strengthened and lifted. Okay, so I'm not exactly sure what that means, to be strengthened and lifted. If I'm God listening to this prayer and wondering what it is that President Nelson wants me to do, I'm a bit confused. He then goes to call for the saints to pray for relief. Now, relief is a good word. Relief from physical, emotional, and economic problems. So he's just asking for some relief, and not just from the physical problems of the coronavirus, but also for emotional and economic problems. This is sounding very, very general to me as God, trying to figure out what he wants. He wants relief, but what kind of relief is he talking about? What does he want me to do? Now, of course, I'm being a little facetious and looking at this from God's point of view, but honestly, if you are a prophet of God and you're calling for a day of fasting and prayer, why don't you use your faith and exercise faith and tell the saints that you want them to pray that God will turn away the coronavirus. That's what it is that you're asking for, isn't it? That it will be stopped 
dead in its tracks. But there appears to be an attempt to use language on the part of President Nelson that is replete with weasel words. In other words, we want you to pray to God about the coronavirus and we want relief from it, but we're going to do it in such a way as that we can explain why it was that it didn't work if God doesn't come through in the clinch. Or we can use such generic terms that it's kind of like a horoscope. No matter what happens, we'll be able to point to something and identify it as an answer to the day of fasting and prayer. Let me play the audio from the first day of fasting and prayer called for by President Nelson and see if you can see what it is I'm talking about. Play the tape. As a physician and surgeon, I have great admiration for medical professionals, scientists, and all who are working around the clock to curb the spread of COVID-19. I am also a man of faith, and I know that during these challenging times, we can be strengthened and lifted as we call upon God and His Son, Jesus Christ, the Master Healer. I invite you to join with me in a worldwide fast for all whose health permits, to pray for relief from the physical, emotional, and economic effects of this global pandemic. I invite members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints everywhere, along with our many friends, to fast and pray this Sunday, March 29th. Let us unite our faith to plead for physical, spiritual, and other healing throughout the entire world. The Lord understands the feelings you are experiencing. He loves and cares for you, as I do, too. So you can see that President Nelson uses apparently deliberately vague language in calling upon God for relief, that God was not exactly clear what he wanted, and likely because of that, at least partially because of that, the first day of fasting and prayer didn't work. The coronavirus was not turned back, so a second day of fasting and prayer was called for. And this was called for during general conference itself. It was during the closing comments that President Nelson made on Sunday afternoon. And what he did was, once again, he invited all the members of the church and everybody in the world for that matter for a second day of fasting and prayer. Now this was Sunday, April 5th, that he made this announcement for the second day of fasting and prayer. And yet he didn't call for it until the following Friday, April 10th. Now, this is an interesting situation where we have a coronavirus pandemic. The first day of fasting and prayer has not worked. He's going to call for a second day of fasting and prayer. I get it. I understand that. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But there are actually people dying out there. And there's not just a few people dying out there. There are thousands of people dying out there every day. Why is it that in a pandemic situation like the one we have now, President Nelson does not call for a second day of fasting and prayer the following day? I mean, right then, there are thousands of people dying every day, and yet he's going to wait until the following Friday for this second day of fasting and prayer. There are thousands and even tens of thousands of people who are going to die between the Sunday of General Conference and Good Friday, April 10th, that he's calling for that day of fasting and prayer. Why is he waiting five more days to have the second day of fasting and prayer? Are these thousands and thousands of people who are dying from it in the meantime simply collateral damage? Are these acceptable losses? If President Nelson really believes that the saints have the power through prayer and fasting to turn away the coronavirus, 
Why doesn't he do it right then? I do not understand why there would be any delay. And it suggests to me, I'm not saying this is the case because I can't read President Nelson's mind, but it suggests to me the possibility that really he doesn't have any faith that this is going to help either. And that his lack of faith in the efficacy of the praying and the fasting is not only demonstrated by his waiting five days to have the second day of prayer and fasting, but also by the language he uses in order to invite the saints to have the day of prayer and fasting. We've talked a little bit about the first call for the day of prayer and fasting and how the language he uses appears to be framed in such a way as to allow for plausible deniability if God does not actually turn away the coronavirus. If you ask for God to turn away the coronavirus and he doesn't turn away the coronavirus, well, there's not a lot of wiggle room. But if you don't ask him in those specific words, but you use a lot of generic kind of language like President Nelson appears to have, then there is wiggle room and even room for a second day of prayer and fasting. And I want to look at the actual language he used on his second call for a second day of prayer and fasting at the end of General Conference. And I'll play that audio for you here in a moment. If anything, his language in the second call for a day of prayer and fasting is even weaker and more ambiguous than his first call for a day of prayer and fasting. I'm going to read this to you here and then I'll play the audio. Here is President Nelson at the end of General Conference on Sunday, April 5th, 2020. In my video message, I invited all to join in fasting on Sunday, March 29th, 2020, period. Now, first off, notice he doesn't say the purpose for the fast. He just says, I invited everybody to fast. That's significant. Next line, many of you may have seen the video and joined in the fast. Some may have not. Notice that expression, some may have not. Immediately he is floating trial balloons as to excuses as to why the first day of prayer and fasting did not do the trick. Why? It's not God's fault. It's your fault because some of you may have not gone along with this first day of prayer and fasting and that's why we have to do it again. That's the message I see being implied here. Some may have not. Now we still need help from heaven. Well, we do. Why? Because the first time didn't do the trick. He goes on. So tonight, my dear brothers and sisters, in the spirit of the sons of Mosiah who gave themselves to much fasting and prayer, and as part of our April 2020 general conference, I am calling for another worldwide fast. So there's a call for the second day of fasting and prayer. For all whose health may permit, let us fast, pray, and unite our faith once again. And why? Here's why. Is it to turn back the coronavirus? No, nothing so bold as that. Let us prayerfully plead for relief from this global pandemic. Once again, he's asking for relief. He's not asking for it to be turned away. And if you actually look up the definition of relief, which I have looked up here, it can mean either a feeling of reassurance and relaxation following release from anxiety or distress, or it can mean assistance, especially in the form of food, clothing, or money given to those in special need or difficulty. So either he's asking for a feeling of reassurance or assistance during a time of difficulty. Praying for relief is asking for assurance and assistance. It's not saying to turn it away. We just like a little bit of help here. Would it be too much trouble? He goes on, I invite all, including those not of our faith, to fast and pray on Good Friday, April 10th that the present pandemic may be turned away, may be turned back, may be stopped in its tracks. No, that the present pandemic may be controlled. He wants the pandemic 
controlled. This is remarkable. What weasel words? Because control obviously does not mean to turn it back or stop it or kill it. It means the power to influence or direct people's behavior or the course of events. We want you to control the course of events. That's what he's saying we want to pray for. We're supposed to pray and fast a second time to God that he will control the present pandemic. Well, one would presume that if he's God and if he's got all power, then he's already controlling the course of events. That's what has caused this pandemic to break forth in the first place. We would presume that even without fasting and prayer a second time or even a first time, he would already be in control of the situation. But President Nelson does not seem to want to put that fine a point on it and actually ask him for what it is that he wants. Why? Once again, this gets a speculation, but it seems to be an out for God that if he doesn't come through, then we have given him plausible deniability by not asking him precisely for what it is that we want him to do. This is something that Mormons are very familiar with, especially those who give priesthood blessings, which are men, of course. Men who give priesthood blessings are very, very good at giving God a way out. Anytime somebody is sick, especially if it's something serious, we give a blessing, but we don't just bless them to be healed. No, that would be too bold. We always give God the escape hatch. And we say, if it be God's will that you be healed, then you be healed. So if they're not healed, which frankly, they almost never are, then it wasn't God's will. And the blessing was still okay. The blessing was still fulfilled. They weren't healed, but obviously it's because it wasn't God's will. And we said that in the blessing. So we're covered. Not only are we covered in the use of the priesthood, but God is covered in his answer to the priesthood blessing. I see a similar thing going on here. Not only is President Nelson covering himself by not asking for what it is he wants, but he is covering for God at the same time. And let's just take for a second the words that President Nelson uses when asking for a miracle from God and compare it to the words used by prophets in the scriptures when they are in a similar position, when they need a miracle from God and they need it right now. When Moses got to the edge of the Red Sea with the children of Israel and their way was blocked, but they've got all of Pharaoh's armies hot on their trail, what does Moses do? Does he raise up his rod over the Red Sea and say, hey, I'm going to look for relief from Pharaoh's armies or I'm going to try and control these waters? No, he parts the Red Sea so they can get through. When Jesus is trying to cure somebody with leprosy, he doesn't say he's going to try and control the leprosy. He says, be thou healed. So whatever you think of President Nelson's language, I think the least that can be said is, it's not quite up there with Lazarus come forth. And once again, this choice of language to use, I think, denotes a lack of faith in the person who is using it. Also, Mormons are very quick when it comes to the relationship between faith and works to go to James chapter 2, where it says faith without works is dead. But if you take the time to read that verse in context, it goes on to say in verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So in other words, if you just say to somebody who needs help, who is in economic distress, as so many members of the church are today because of this coronavirus. If you just say to them, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them the things that they need. You don't give them clothes. You don't give them food. You don't help them out in a material sense. What does James say about that? He says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead 
being alone. So what are we to make of President Nelson's not once but twice calling for worldwide fast from the saints, for relief from God, for economic relief from God, but he doesn't open the purse of the $100 billion he has in the EPA account to help out. According to James, that also shows a decided lack of faith on his part, or at least a lack of saving faith, a lack of effective faith, a lack of faith that's going to accomplish the thing that you want to have accomplished. And then it goes on in verse 18 to say, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Well, President Nelson doesn't seem to have a lot of works, but he does seem to have a lot of calls for fasting and prayer. He goes on, We invite all to fast and pray that the present pandemic may be controlled caregivers protected. Okay, that's a little bit more specific, that caregivers be protected. It doesn't say that nobody get the coronavirus if you're a caregiver, but protected in some kind of general sense. The economy strengthened. Well, okay, we want it strengthened. I'm not exactly sure exactly what that means. It sounds good, but I'm not sure how you would determine if that prayer had been answered that the economy be strengthened. And finally, life normalized. So four things to pray for that the pandemic may be controlled, caregivers protected, the economy strengthened, and life normalized. We want to get back to a normal life. Well, that can happen, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, just through the course of coming to adapt ourselves to the present situation, the new normal. Life has become normalized in my sense only because I've been doing the same thing now for five weeks. I'm entering into five weeks of these podcasts and this has become my new normal. So in a sense, I see my life as being normalized even though the situation outside has not changed. It is I who have changed in response to the outside. And please notice the one thing that is missing from both calls for a day of fasting and prayer. And that one thing that is glaringly missing from both is a deadline, a time limit. God, please turn this away now. Turn it away immediately. Turn it away starting tomorrow, the day after, even next week. But there is no deadline. And why? So that whenever it goes away, which it presumably has to at some point, then we can look with authority at these days of fasting and prayer and point to them as the reason that it has finally abated regardless of when it happens. And once again, all I'm saying here is that President Nelson is asking for people to pray and fast in such a way and for such things that there is no effective metric to determine whether or not these prayers are being answered. So you see, the very ambiguity of the prayer itself not only hurts because you can't tell when the prayer has been answered. On the flip side of the coin, anything that happens can be seen as an answer to the prayer. That's the beauty of the ambiguity. That's the beauty of a horoscope. You can always find something that happens in your life that can be seen as an answer to a horoscope. In the same way, anything can happen that can be seen as an answer to this kind of generic prayer. He says, how do we fast? Two meals or a period of 24 hours is customary. Yeah, like we don't know that. But you decide what would constitute a sacrifice for you. As you remember the supreme sacrifice the Savior made for you. Well, thank you for the guilt trip, President Nelson. But notice what he's doing here. He is seeding within his second call for a day of prayer and fasting the excuse, if it's needed, for why it didn't work. Because Jesus made a great sacrifice for us. There couldn't be a bigger sacrifice. So you think about what he did for you while you're considering how much you want to fast for him. So if it doesn't work, well, it's your fault again because you didn't fast enough. Not only is the language hopelessly generic and ambiguous, not only is there no deadline, but also if it doesn't work, it's your fault and not God's and not President Nelson's either. It's a win-win. President Nelson goes on. Let us unite in pleading for healing throughout the world. So at least he's mentioning the word healing again, 
but in such a general sense that it's hard to say how you would measure whether that prayer is being answered. It's let us unite in pleading for healing throughout the world. Well, obviously in some places in the world there's going to be healing. The vast majority of people who contract this virus are getting better. So no matter what it is that happens throughout the world, it can be seen and viewed as an answer to this prayer. He goes on to say, Good Friday would be the perfect day to have our Heavenly Father and His Son hear us. Now, that is an interesting expression. Not only is Good Friday five days after the day he's calling for the second day of prayer and fasting, which gets again into the idea of acceptable losses and collateral damage of all the people dying in between those times, but I do have to note that Good Friday is not really a super good day for God hearing and answering prayers because according to the Gospels, that's the day on which Jesus was crucified and the day he prayed to God from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So I would think that Good Friday might be the one day on the Christian calendar, which would be the least perfect day to have our Heavenly Father hear and answer our prayers. But be that as it may, now I'm just quibbling. But nevertheless, President Nelson wants everybody to wait five more days to Good Friday in order to give it a second try. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I express my deep love for you along with my testimony of the divinity of the work in which we are engaged. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which you would know if you took a bicycle ride by any of the word buildings and looked at the sign. Yes, this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He stands at its head and directs all that we do. And then this fascinating statement. I know that he will respond to the pleadings of his people. Now that's an interesting thing for President Nelson to say when he's calling for a second day of prayer and fasting. I know that he will respond to the pleadings of his people. This seems to be a knowledge that President Nelson is claiming, not only in the absence of facts that would support his claim, but actually a claim that is made in the teeth of evidence that that is not the case. The first day of fasting and prayer, obviously God did not respond to the pleadings of his people, so he has to call for a second day of fasting and prayer. And it is in the context of the second call for a day of fasting and prayer that he says, I know that he will respond to the pleadings of his people. And this, more and more, seems to me to be emblematic of the testimonies that we hear from church leaders. Not only are they made with absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support them, but more and more they are made in spite of all the evidence that contradicts the claim that they say they know and that they testify to the truthfulness of. I know that he will respond to the pleadings of his people. And then he says, I so testify. See, he's going to testify to it in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's play that tape here so we can hear the audio of President Nelson making these astonishing claims in his own words. Play the tape. I said recently in a social media video that as a physician and surgeon, I have tremendous respect for medical professionals, scientists, and others who are working around the clock to curb the spread of COVID-19. Now, as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and an apostle of Jesus Christ, I know that God has all power, all wisdom, all understanding. He comprehendeth all things, and he is a merciful being, even unto salvation, to those who will repent and believe on his name. So during times of deep distress, as when illness reaches pandemic proportions, 
the most natural thing for us to do is to call upon our Heavenly Father and His Son, the Master Healer, to show forth their marvelous power to bless the people of the earth. In my video message, I invited all to join in fasting on Sunday, March 29, 2020. Many of you may have seen the video and joined in the fast. Some may have not. Now we still need help from heaven. So tonight, my dear brothers and sisters, in the spirit of the sons of Mosiah who gave themselves to much fasting and prayer, and as part of our April 2020 General Conference, I am calling for another worldwide fast. For all whose health may permit, let us fast, pray, and unite our faith once again. Let us prayerfully plead for relief from this global pandemic. I invite all, including those not of our faith, to fast and pray on Good Friday, April 10th, that the present pandemic may be controlled, caregivers protected, the economy strengthened, and life normalized. How do we fast? Two meals or a period of 24 hours is customary, but you decide. What would constitute a sacrifice for you, as you remember the supreme sacrifice the Savior made for you? Let us unite in pleading for healing throughout the world. Good Friday would be the perfect day to have our Heavenly Father and His Son hear us. Dear brothers and sisters, I express my deep love for you, along with my testimony of the divinity of the work in which we are engaged. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He stands at its head and directs all that we do. I know that he will respond to the pleadings of his people. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.